Our scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Good morning, and this is part two, maybe part three of one, should be one sermon. So if you uh, were here last week and you left just feeling like a snarf burger because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm just so sinful and evil and gross. Well, good news. Today we're going to talk about the other half, and unfortunately, A lot of us, honestly, only hear that one sermon, and it's a true sermon, a good sermon, and and, and it needs to be heard, but there's a fuller picture, my hope is that we complete today uh, to give you a a nice snapshot of everything that it means to to live in Christ. And that's what Colossians is about. Uh, Colossians is ultimately a letter about growing up in Christ, about maturing in Christ, and we have this... This city called Colossae that has really diminished in Roman times, and it's similar probably, quite frankly, to our own city uh, in many ways. And these guys have come in, and what they've said is that, yeah, life begins, spiritual life begins when you start or believe in Jesus, but any kind of growth or living comes from doing religious things or not doing irreligious things is the thing that they're arguing for. And that's the problem. And Paul has said that even though um, that might look like maturity, that might have the appearance of wisdom, uh, the truth is it's really little more than um, probably Peter Pan spirituality. Very childish, uh, very superficial. Um, Paul has said very clearly that spiritual adulthood, growing up in Christ, doesn't come from those things. It comes from exposing our minds, setting our minds, uh, being saturated by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And mysteriously and powerfully, as we behold that, it changes us. Um, It doesn't change anything to do a bunch of religious things. But when you behold Christ, it transforms us from the inside out. So last week, I ended with a verse that might have been kind of weird to end with, but it was a verse out of a really old book called Jeremiah, written by an old guy, well, he's dead now with Jesus, but uh, written by the prophet Jeremiah, and here's what it said. It said in verse 13 of chapter 2 of his book, my people, speaking for God, my people have committed two evils, and here they are. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns, containers for water, for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so, not only have men 
refuse to drink of the living water that is Jesus Christ of God, refuse to behold Him, the thing that does transform us, they have also chosen to go and find other cisterns, make some for themselves, lick the water off the little pottery pieces because they're broken, and basically behold other stuff. So two things have happened here. We have two battles to fight. That's why I've said this is kind of a two-part thing that we need to understand. Now, last week we talked about the first battle. And the first battle is against what is our sinful flesh, the, the broken, if you will, packaging around the new heart we have. For those who are in Christ, your fight against that sinful flesh is from a position of righteousness. Okay? And what I mean is, the motivation for your fight is not to obtain a right position with God. Your faith in Christ has already received that, irrevocably. So, what we have, to, to use kind of um, big theological terms that are never explained but always used, through faith in Christ, trusting in the work of Christ, what He did, we are first fully justified. Justice has been satisfied. We have been declared innocent and blameless. Okay, so we are. That's never going to change. God sees you fully justified through the blood of Christ. Someday, when Christ returns or you die to uh, go see Him, you will be fully glorified with Him. So that state of perfection, that glorification, is coming. Now, in between that time, between our justification and our glorification is life. And that is this term that we call sanctification, setting apart something. And that is the the lifelong process, the slow, progressive, sometimes painful process, where God is repossessing you for His purposes because you were a vessel used for bad purposes before. And it's, it's slow, but you become to look more and more like Christ as you behold Christ, that image in you is renewed, and more of that Christ new heart dwelling in you is revealed for all of us to see, especially as we have relationship with one another. And it's not just one part of our life, it's all parts of our lives, which is very important to understand. Now, killing sin, fighting against that sinful flesh that is trying, though it's defeated and powerless and can't really do it unless you allow it, Try and have dominion over you. Fighting and killing sin is not enough. Okay? If you, uh, it reminds me of the passage in, I think it's Luke 11, I think I wrote it down, where Jesus tells the story of a guy cleans out the spirit in his house, kind of like basically cleans out all the gook and garbage and yuck, and the evil spirit's gone, and then does nothing else. And then Jesus says, what will happen if that happens? That seven spirits will come back and make it worse than it was before. The reality is if you clean, if you fight to clean and get all the the garbage out that is your sinful flesh and do nothing else, you will not succeed. You may be saved, you may may go your life will be miserable because you're constantly letting that sinful flesh come back in. Now, the reality is you need to fight sin. You need to campaign against sin very strategically, very ruthlessly. But turning away from sin, walking away from sin, and then standing still doesn't do it. Standing still accomplishes nothing. You need to walk in Christ as you stop walking in what you once walked. 
Now, walking in Christ implies ongoing movement, ongoing action in a particular direction. So there are two battles. One is walking away from sin, turning from your sin, and not delighting in it anymore, and turning toward Christ and delighting in Him. That's what we're talking about today. Not only are you putting off something, you're putting on something. You can't just empty yourself of all the junk. You need to fill yourself up with something to behold Jesus Himself. And what we all have is this this default mode. We'll call it Adam 1.0 mode. Okay, And Adam 1.0 mode comes out in all of us, in everything. That's the sinful flesh. And it It is an easy way to live because it's very natural for us. It's very normal for us. It's what's expected from us. And we're trying to to live out Adam 2.0. What Corinthians says is Jesus. It doesn't really use Adam 2.0. It's just the last Adam, right? The second Adam. That is Jesus. And as you begin to fight, you begin to say that, man, some of the things I'm fighting to live out are actually very countercultural. They're different than the world. They're counter-traditional. They're different how I was raised. Different what I've experienced. And they're even counterintuitive. Like, it doesn't, I don't feel like doing this. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. And that's the fight that we're talking about today. Putting on Christ. Filling yourself up with Christ. With our new hearts, by the power of the Spirit, these old ways become a little more undesirable every time we fight. Doesn't mean that we are able to resist them perfectly all the time. But you have to do both. You have to put off the Adam suit, if you will, and put on the Jesus suit, and only then do you get a picture of holiness. So today, what I'm going to do basically is go, let me show you the Jesus that we're beholding. And it'll sound like the attributes of Jesus, but it's Jesus himself. And this is simply a sermon, which all sermons are. It basically says, look at Jesus! Wow! That's in you. Okay? That's in you. It's, it's, it's just awesome. All right. Paul starts out here. He, he just, last week, talked about these ten vices. Anger, malice, all these things, right? And he doesn't say they're, they're bad because primarily they're anti-relationship, which they are. They destroy relationship between us. They're anti-Christ. That's the problem. And so now he's going to list these attributes that you say, put on Christ. It's Christ himself, not just these things apart from Christ. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay, Here's how he begins and where we all need to begin, reminding people who they are in Christ. He says, you are chosen. You are holy. You are loved by God. Now, it reminds me that I can never forget who I am and that any fight I have, whether it be against sin or for Jesus, is simply a response to what God has done. That's hugely important. Now, he told Israel, back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you ever care to watch it, why they were so special. Okay, He goes to them and says, let me tell you why you were so special, why I chose you. It was not because you were the greatest big people all around. It wasn't because you had the coolest clothes or talked the best or were less sinful. I chose you simply because I decided to love you. It was all about God. Everything is about God. And my fight is constantly rooted in the motivation that it is a response to what God has done for me. Now, Jesus chose me. 
I believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you can say the same thing. He chose me as son, though I walked away from him. Jesus made me holy, though I am unholy at the core. Jesus loved me, though I'm an unlovely sinner. See, the gospel is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. The gospel is about what God has done. We just benefit from what God has done. The gospel says God poured out his perfect justice. I say perfect because he has the right to wipe it all out. He poured out his perfect justice, his perfect wrath. He poured that out on his perfect son. And he poured out his immeasurable grace, his immeasurable mercy on me, a sinner. My only response is worship. And not through what Paul has been condemning, religious stuff. That's not how to worship God. Through legalism, through religious tradition, through mystical experiences, which these guys are lifting up above Jesus. What we're talking about, and this is where it's like, we talk about worship, we go, worship, oh, it's worship. We're worship. And make it out this... Think about just worship coming down out of the ethereal, theological, spiritual world into real life. Where you begin to worship as a lifestyle, as you walk, as you talk, as you drive. And you go, how can you worship as you... I've seen a lot of people poorly worshiping as they drive, right? As you eat, as you drink, as you parent, as you make all these things that you are to worship God, as you purchase and spend money. There is a way to glorify God and worship Him in a way not to. That's what we're talking about. See, Christ wants more than your religiosity or your morality. He wants everything. Every aspect of you, not just the religious parts. Whatever those are. And that's why living a Christ-centered life is so hard. Because you can't just take these people. The parts that are easy... You know, the religion, that's easy to be religious. It's easy to be legalistic. It's hard to live in the daily grind of life and go, man, I'm going to be faithful here. And that's why any fight you have, whether it be against sin or for righteousness, is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It is, depend, it is still dependent upon the Holy Spirit. You are powerless without Him. Now, apart from faith in Christ apart from being given a new heart like I talked about last week, which apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit, you cannot obey God and worship Him. If you are not a believer, you don't have a chance. Until you put your faith in Christ, you don't have a new heart, you do not have the Holy Spirit, you cannot worship God, even if you do what the world might call good things. For those who put their faith in Christ, though, you don't have an excuse! You have the power to put off sin and the power to put on Christ. Because it's not about you. It's about the Holy Spirit in you and you confessing your weakness and depending upon the Spirit and living as you ought. Now, we are not just putting on holy attitudes. Okay, As we go through these, we need to understand, as, as mysterious it is, as it is, we're actually putting on Christ in us. 
We are revealing the image that is being restored in us that is there. So it's not things apart from Christ. He lists these things here that are beautiful about Jesus. That's what he's telling us to put on. like, be kind because that's nice. No, be kind because that is Christ in you. That's what he's appealing to, the Christ part in you. The part that is being renewed, the part that sin is trying to have dominion and distort. So we go through this, we're talking about Christ. And the first thing he says is put on the compassion of Christ. This is the most difficult one for me to preach because I am woefully pathetic at this one. Um, and I really don't say that as like a guy comes up and goes, I struggle with pride. And then just moves on and doesn't ever say anything about I really, I've been, this is one of my fights. This is one of the things I fight in myself. Um, and the important thing is to look how Christ, what is Christ's compassion? Well, when Christ looked at you, when Christ looked at me, he looked past all the hostility. He looked past all of the brokenness. He looked past all of the dirt and the rebellion and all the evil that was you. He looked past all of that to the beauty of what you were meant to be past that. He didn't get irritated by it. He didn't distance himself and go, oh, yucky. He looked and he saw, though none of us were lovely, none of us were loving, he chose to love us. And this wasn't just a moment of compassion. This was a deep-rooted attitude of, of empathy, of sympathy for someone that was broken. Now, we're not good at that. I'm not good at that. And what I mean is, all of us have our list. We all have a list of people that irritate us, types of people. I don't like stinky people. I don't like poor people. I don't like uneducated people. I don't like fat people. I don't like skinny people. I don't like good-looking people. I don't like educated people. I don't like churchy people. I don't like... Make your list. You have justified who is not worthy to be shown compassion. When Christ didn't do that to you, He showed compassion. In fact, He empathized so much with us. So much that He entered into our suffering and dwelt with us. Now this is all relational. We're talking about as we're to act because of Christ. When was the last time you entered into someone else's suffering with them? As opposed to like, whoa, little broken for me. Right? When you sit down with people and they start confessing their sins, you're like, in your mind thinking, I'm so glad I'm not screwed up like this guy. Right? <laughs> I'm sure that's not happened to anyone. It only happens to pastors who people confess to. Okay? That's the reality I'm talking about. Where instead of distancing yourself, instead of even mentally distancing yourself, you enter into their brokenness to be with them. Not to fix it. Not to, to make it, just to be with them. And to say, man, I want, I want to tell me about that. And to show them compassion. That's a fight for me. I took a test when I first was like, I had to take a bunch of personality tests and junk like that when I went through... Uh, playing the church stuff, and I took a test, and empathy came up. And on a scale of 1 to 100, I might be exaggerating, but it was like below 10. Okay? Now, all, as we go through these, all, everyone has their below 10 somewhere. This is where my fight is. 
This is where I have to fight to not be distant. Fight to not, I've got to enter in it deliberately as opposed to indifferent. See, in, in Adam, the 1.0 in me, we're indifferent. We don't care. We distance, remove. You're too dirty, yucky. You're not like me. I can't show you compassion. But in Christ, we genuinely care for others especially others who are not like us, especially others that we think are too dirty for us to spend time with. And dirty doesn't have to be impoverished dirty. Dirty can just be that irritating personality that you think isn't worthy of being loved. By the Spirit, in response to Christ's compassion for us, we do the uncomfortable, difficult work of entering into another's suffering. And as we fight against our flesh that wants to, to judge Him, wants to ignore Him, we fight to put on the compassion of Christ. So we're looking at Jesus and asking for that. Second, we put on the kindness of Christ. See, Christ didn't just decide to hold a different view of us. I'm just going to think of you differently. A different disposition. I'm going to think kind thoughts towards you. Loving things. He actually acted. In fact, he acted graciously in such a way that we can actually point to it and say, this is what your kindness looked like to me. It was measurable. We saw an effect. Now, he entered into this life for me, which, when you begin to understand who he is, is more humbling than, than I can't compare anything more humbling. He suffered for me. He took God's wrath for me. He overcame sin and death for me. This is the kindness of Christ. And the kindness of Christ cost him something. In fact, it cost him everything. Because kindness is costly if you're going to talk about Christ-like kindness. We have been saved because of God's gracious kindness toward us through Christ. And in Adam, we are unkind. We do not make sacrifices because it costs too much. It's not convenient to be kind. It's not comfortable to be kind. It is much easier to be self-centered, to hoard our stuff, whether that stuff be our words, our actions, or our material things. That's not the kindness of Christ. The kindness of Christ was costly. And if your kindness is not costing you something, then you're probably not kind in this sense. And you have a fight to take up. In Adam, we're selfish, but in Christ, we are gracious. We are generous. We bless. Why? Because Christ blessed us. By the Spirit, in response to the kindness of Christ, we give up and we build up, knowing and expecting it will cost us. Because giving and building does. And as we fight against our flesh that wants to be harsh or cruel or just self-centered in all our things, we put on the kindness of Christ. Not only that, we put on the humility of Christ, which this is one we all struggle with. There aren't people that are kind of prideful and those that are not. We're all prideful. And we ought not be if you're in Christ. And if you find yourself struggling with pride, that's because you don't know who Jesus is. And you don't know what he did. The humility of Christ uh, comes from holding a very solid, 
theological, biblical, clear picture of who Jesus is. This is why Paul, in the beginning of a letter about growing in Christ, verses 15 to 20, he's like, this is who Jesus is, in case you're wondering. Creator of all things, ruler of all things, recreator of all things, sustainer of all things. Why would he ever take time to do that? Because he's going to talk about putting on the humility of Christ. I mean, think about it. When you understand who Christ is, consider for a moment which you'll never fully understand, which is that's the idea of mystery, something that you kind of see, but you never understand it. The level of humility it takes for infinite, eternal creator God to enter into his creation and take on human flesh as a child will celebrate next month. I mean, that's... I don't even know how to respond to it. When you sit and think about the humility that it takes to do that. But it didn't stop there. You talk about that mystifying you. Let's talk about the humility it takes for the crucifixion. To to die at the hands of his own creation. To be put on a tree and hung that he created. To be spit upon from mouths that he created. To be mocked with tongues that he created. Humbly. A humility that I can't fully fathom. And it should shame us all. It should shame us all. Because we think way too highly of ourselves. And humility is not, ironically, thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking so highly of others. Of more concern for them. Their needs more valuable than your own. See, Christ is other-oriented at the core. At His core. And in Adam, we are prideful. We feel entitled. We, we are all about ourselves. But in Christ, we begin to be. And this is where we fight to be other-oriented. We, we, t- we ask Christ to come at us to see the needs of others as truly more important than ourselves. And you have to actively fight for that even when you don't feel like doing that. And slowly, I believe it becomes more natural. By the Spirit, in response to the humility of Christ, we deny ourselves the, quote, right to power, esteem, honor, that God and others might be held in honor. That means... In very practical ways, we submit to many of the authorities in their lives who we really don't like because we firmly believe God has placed them there, and we submit. It impacts how we have our marriages. It impacts how we listen to counsel from others. Like, what do you know? Humility says maybe they have something to speak to you from their experience or just from God. And we serve others without expecting anything in return. That's not why we serve. And if you think it is, you ask yourself, when you start listing out the benefits of whether or not I should serve, ask yourself how many benefits Christ listed out when he went to the cross. As we fight against our flesh that pridefully wants to achieve and be approved or even complain about unfair treatment, I have heard my children say more than anything else, that's not fair tried to help them. What you mean is that's not equal to that, but we won't talk about that. 
That's not fair. That's not fair. We say the exact same things as adults. They come out different. That boss isn't treating me fairly. I deserve better. Careful. If anyone could say that, Christ could. And he didn't. When he was reviled, he was silent. When they took him to the cross, he had a completely different attitude. We put on the humility of Christ, which is hard. We put on the meekness of Christ. I love this one. Okay, Now, when Jesus was about to be arrested, maybe you've heard this story, maybe you haven't. Peter had his little, you know, wanger, wanger knife there or whatever, and he goes, whoop, whacks off a guy's ear as they're trying to arrest Jesus. And Jesus looks at him like, what are you doing? You know, he heals the ear, right? I always wonder if the ear was, if he had picked the ear up and, or if he like just went, Whoa, and there's like two ears. That would be kind of weird, right? I know, weird, this weird stuff that Bible people think about. Now, so he heals his ear, and he looks at Peter, and what did he say? He said, Peter, what are you doing? Don't you know that I could have 12 legions of angels here if I wanted? That's like 6,000 apiece, each legion. Like, what are you doing? Do we, do, he might as well have said, Peter, do you know who I am? We talk about the meekness of Christ. We're talking about the things, think about all the cr- things that Christ, the creator, in human flesh, could have done. He did wow them with miracles, but there have been a, a lot of other miracles he could have done. Like when they came to arrest him, like, hey, hold on, stop breathing. Good one, huh? Right? Look, you know, in fact, your legs are gone. I mean, he just... World end. I mean, there's so many things he could have done. He didn't. Jesus Christ didn't lose any of his divinity when he came in the incarnation, but he certainly chose not to employ much of it. He could have been king. He could have destroyed them all, but he remained control of his immeasurable and his immeasurable. He was infinite power and strength, and allowed his creation to kill him, in fact. See, in Adam, we're always driven by our power and our unrestrained passions. But in Christ, we act with strength that's tempered with gentleness. We act with passions that are tempered with restraint. By the Spirit, in response to Christ's meekness, we fight the temptation to have to have it, to have to flex it, to have to fix it, especially when we know we can. I'm going to take it because I can. I'm going to flex it because I can. I'm going to fix it because I can. Maybe you ought not. Think about all the things that Christ could have done that he chose not to. He could have healed a lot more people, but for whatever reason he chose not to. Meekness. Control, discernment. We need to fight to put on the meekness of Christ. We need to put on the patience of Christ. Again, appealing to Christ dwelling in you, the Spirit of Christ that's in there. Not, okay, I'm going to go be patient so that Jesus would love me. No, it's there. And patience is my most recent fight. Uh, for me personally, I don't, I don't like sit and go, hmm, what are the things I can tell people that will like, uh, make them get inspired? I'm just telling you what's raw for me. I told my wife the other day, my greatest, I told my kids actually, we have a prayer, Sabbath, celebration, treats, and uh, singing on Wednesday nights. 
So this one was like, what is our, what's our fight? And each person like, what, what are you fighting most against? What's the thing? And for me, it's patience. And ironically, come, my kids bring out the worst in that particular piece of me. I told Kaylin that I was going to be praying for patience. She's like, oh, please don't. And I said, why? Why would you say that? She said, because if you pray for that, then the kids are going to go like nuts. So, and you know what? They did. They did like suddenly like, you know, God's like, okay, demonic kids. Boom. And then suddenly I'm like, opportunities to be patient overflow, right? So that, be careful praying for this stuff. I want to be kind. Then you have all these people knocking on your door, you know, asking for stuff. So be careful. But the reality is you put on the patience of Christ and you think about, guys, okay, Again, we're trying to just behold Christ. How patient was Christ? And I'm not talking about patient like, man, he really was slow about going from town to town and just took his time. I'm talking about how patient was Christ, our judge, with judgment. Since the beginning, God has been incredibly patient with a very rebellious world and a rebellious Sam. Although he could have been entitled and is entitled to everything, he has not demanded it in a way that he took it. And as a man, when a sinless Jesus was mocked by his family, was slandered by strangers, was betrayed by a friend, was falsely accused by who would have been his pastors, when he was beaten by his creation, he had and revealed incredible patience. The word literally is, is long-tempered. Like, it's not that there's no temper. It's just that it's long. And a patient person can put up with incredibly irritating people and incredibly frustrating circumstances. Now, I say irritating people not to say that that person is intrinsically irritating, but that they're irritating to you. Right? That person may not, whoever that person is in your life, they may not irritate me at all. You may come to me and describe what they're like, and I'm like, what is that the big deal? But for whatever reason, you got that person that just, oh my gosh. They're there for you to fight for patience. That's, I don't like the way God works like that sometimes. But if his goal is to get you more like Christ, he will use that without doubt, or who just give you four kids. Now, I will say that doesn't mean that you never get angry. Jesus got angry, and he revealed without doubt anger uh, in a very holy way, a, resign, a, a, a sign of being just um, angry at sin. But impulsive, unrestrained, violent, Verbal, active anger is sinful. Anger that is not rooted in Christ is sinful. I've gotten angry with my kids, but if I act on that and spank them just to feel better or to show them who's boss, that's sin. So we have to be careful. Patience is, is without doubt the goal, and anger has a place, but we have to be careful that our sinful flesh doesn't let it dominate us. And if you are in Adam, that sinful flesh in us, sin or anger governs you. You get irritated easily. 
you get angry impulsively, you're not fun to be with relationally. But in Christ, we patiently endure. We take a breath by the strength of Christ. And we endure people and we endure circumstances because, like Christ, we are entrusting ourselves to God. That's whom is most important. By the Spirit, we control our impulsive outbursts. We fight our right to have to be right. Our need to have it our way immediately. And we put on the patience of Christ. Put on the forgiveness of Christ. Oh, this one's going to floor you. You're going to hate this one. Okay, I, I do. Maybe only only one. We put on the... Okay, good. We got one other person. Praise Jesus. We put on the forgiveness of Christ. Now, this is the logical like outworking of everything Paul's written because all these things are relational. In fact, all spiritual growth, catch this, all spiritual growth is relational in nature. You cannot grow spiritually in isolation. God is by nature relational, and we see that in Christ. God is other-oriented. We are built the same way. We are designed for community. We are designed for relationships. They are not just the best place to grow. They are the only way growth is possible. Now, we cannot isolate ourselves and just go, you know what, I'm going to think about being compassionate. Right? I'm just going to consider what it would like to be more kind. I'm going to fight to meditate on humility a little bit more by myself in my room. Right? I'm going to be really meek with my stuffed animals and patient with the uh, Facebook account. I mean, come on. You can't grow any of these things. They're all relational. All of it is. We need each other to practice on. Right? We, we need each other to grow. We, we have to have others to be sanctified in compassion and humility and meekness and all these things. So, this is the funny thing. If you are sinful, like me, as we're practicing, you know that I'm going to fall short. I'm not going to be compassionate or as kind as I ought to be. Hopefully I'll be more kind as I grow. But I'm not always going to be humble, and neither are you. I'm not always going to be meek. I'm going to use my power wrongly, as you will. I'm not always going to be patient. I'm going to be impulsive. So what do we need? Forgiveness. We need forgiveness because we have to look at each other. Correction. We have to remind ourselves how much we've been forgiven. That is why we forgive. And if you, have a, if you have struggle forgiving people, then you don't really fully understand the depth of your sin. And I pray God will show it to you. And even if I gave you a piece of paper and said, hey, write out all the sins that you, you can think of. Even if you could recall every single one that you, you may have done, that wouldn't be the complete list. I am convinced that none of us know the depth, and could ever know the depth of our sin like God knows the depth of our sin. All of the moments and times where we have hated and we ought not and not loved as we ought. 
We don't know the depth of our sin, the, the evil. We kind of like categorize it. Well, I haven't done that many sinful things in my life. You don't get it. You don't get it. You fall short in every aspect of your life. That's why we need forgiveness from one another. In Adam, we refuse to excuse. We, we hold grudges when people make mistakes or sin against us, and we only absolve those who deserve it. But in Christ, let us remember what Christ's statement was as He sat on that cross. It wasn't, yeah, you're going to get yours. You just wait. You wait a few thousand years, you guys are going to get smoked. Okay? It wasn't that. It was, forgive them. Forgive them. They know not what they're doing. So in Christ, we forgive. As difficult, it is a fight. A very difficult one for, for most of us. But by the Spirit, inspired by the forgiveness of Christ, we fight against such things as gossip. Why? Because that actually is part of unforgiveness. As slander, as against bitterness, and we go to the offender who has hurt us, and we tell them, I forgive you. Or if you've hurt somebody, guess what? You don't wait for them. You go and ask their forgiveness. And by God's grace, we'll get better at that. I wish that was an overnight switch, but it's not. It takes time because sin hurts and forgiveness is hard. But we have to fight to put on the forgiveness of Christ. Verse 14 here says, And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together. It says that love takes, it's like the packaging of all these things, which the Bible has a lot to say about love. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, which is the famous passage used in weddings and stuff. Paul had argued that every spiritual thing we might do is meaningless without love. <clears throat> he said that um, love is the first of the fruits listed in Galatians 5, or the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, love is how Jesus summarized the entire law uh, of God. And love is what Jesus said would identify um, us to the world as his disciples. So, the Bible has a lot to say about love. And in fact, the epistle of John uh, says that God is love. And that tells us that it's not culture or tradition or experience or comfort or convenience that defines love. And in fact, it's God himself, and particularly we see in Christ. So putting on the love of Christ not only ensures that what I believe are our Christ-likeness pursuit and our attitudes are pure, but in fact that our Christ-like actions are too. Well, what do you mean? Well, any form of compassion or kindness or humility or gentleness or patience or forgiveness that is not governed by the love of Christ is a perversion. If you are kind and loving, but it's not like Christ, motivated by Christ, it's wrong. Or incomplete, at least. Love of Christ makes sure that we actually love others in the way that He loved us. Not that we just do nice things for them. Sometimes the most loving thing you could do for someone is to actually tell them some very difficult truth. And if you package everything by love, not only does it give you a filter for how your actions go through, like, gosh, is this going to be loving? I know it's truthful, but maybe I shouldn't say that right now because that's not loving, or maybe it's the most loving thing. It also gives you a filter for how people respond to you or how they act towards you to understand what they're doing. So when that friend comes and says something difficult to you, your immediate thing is like, oh, you think you're smarter than me? 
Oh, your life got all figured out? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where's the love filter here? I'm saying this because I love you. I'm doing hard things because I love you. Do you know how much humility it took for me to be able to even say these words to you? Or when someone blesses you, like someone gets, I know you're struggling here, I'm gonna, I want to just bless your family with some money so that you can be taken care of. Like, oh, you don't think I can take care of my family? I mean, how quick we are to do those kind of things? Someone being compassionate and because you don't have love, you're like, whoa, whoa, what do, you, what do you mean? I'm not broken. I don't need help. Love. Make sure all these things are governed the right way. Paul ends here in 15 to 17. And uh, he provides us some governing principles, I think, for those extra hard relationships. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, he's talking about peace and contentment and unity in relationships, and particularly in the church, us, but also in um, all relationships, in your family. And undoubtedly, when you bring people together, um, you're going to have different opinions, different experiences, different personalities, And you'll have people in different stages of spiritual maturity. And it's tempting to take all those differences and use those, maybe it's tempting for Satan to use those, as a means to separate us. And separate marriages and separate individuals and relationships. And what Paul says, the word for rule here is a rule for empire, or umpire. And Paul says that the peace of Christ is to to umpire between all of us. So what's that mean? Well, it means that the peace of Christ isn't just supposed to help us, but that it should actually rule us. Our shared identity in Christ, the fact that I am saved by Jesus, you are saved by Jesus, we both love Jesus. These truths of what Christ has done for us means that we should be filled with so much gratitude toward God. So much gospel gratitude that I care more about the peace of Christ, then I care even about being wronged by you. So I'll willingly go, you know what? Hey, it's okay. You can be right. Forgive me. You're so concerned with harmony and peace and honoring God that you will actually be willing to be wronged. I love, it's not that you want to be wronged, but something's more important than that. Something's more important than you not getting what you want or not being heard, even from someone you love. I know that's what it works out. My hope is that how it works out in our own marriage. There are times when my wife and I disagree. And she is 100% convinced that she is right, and I'm 100% convinced that, she, that I am right and she is wrong, right? So what do you do? Well, I've got the Holy Spirit. Well, so do I. Boom. Come on. I got my verses. I got my verses. You know, I mean, what do you do? You go, Christ. Christ. And hopefully both of us are, but if not, men, you're called to do this. You're called to lead in this. You're called to say, look, peace is more important in my life and in our relationship than having to be right. I love how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. I think it's chapter 6. He talks about Christians suing each other. People don't like this verse, okay? Be prepared. Here's what he says. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. 
Here's the verse they don't read. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Rule of Christ. The peace of Christ ruling more important than me having to be right. And this kind of radical rule only happens when the Word of God resides in your heart. That's why he starts hitting. You think pastors are like, you need to read your Bible. Just read your Bible, read your Bible, be holy, read your Bible. Okay, everyone thinks like, that's why. Paul's the one who keeps on saying, read your Bible. Read your Bible. It's, in the, it's all over. Read Psalm chapter 1. It says, a man who is saturating the word of God is a tree. Not a little shrubbery. It is what is key to our strength. It's key to our contentment. It's key to relational blessing with all of us. He says the only way that we can really behold the ugliest of our sin, and the only way that we can really flee from it and behold and run to the beauty of Christ is to see it in God's Word. This is where Jesus is revealed to us most completely. The Word, this Word, right? We talk about depending on the Spirit for our fight. Well, guess what? This is the vehicle through which that comes. The Word goes out. That's the power of the Spirit. Guess what the Spirit does? Leads you back to the Word. That's what Christ said the Spirit would do. It's rooted in the Word. You can't separate the Spirit and the Word. So when someone comes to me, well, the Spirit told me this, but that contradicts God's Word. Guess what's going to win? God's Word. That's why John says, test the spirits. You're not just testing them with some kind of checklist. It's with the Word of God. So we need to read we need to eat and drink and breathe and live the Bible. And here's just a great question, and I know I like to ask questions, but I've asked myself this in a very real way, though I'm a pastor and you think, well, you have that figured out. What does the Word of God, what place does it have really in your daily life? Taken out of ethereal, theological, spiritual world and go, okay, daily life, really? And I don't mean how many chapters do you read in your Bible every day. That's not what I'm talking about. Just talking about what place, what value does the Word of God actually have in your life to actually govern your decisions? Because Paul says really clearly, it's supposed to dictate the truth we tell to people, how we teach them or admonish them, how we criticize them or how we tell them the truth. It is supposed to dictate um, what wisdom we have and how we make decisions. It's supposed to uh, dictate how we worship and how we sing. Our songs should be Scripture rich. Why? Because it actually teaches us through doing that. Everything needs to be governed by the Bible. To put on Jesus is to put on the living word. And we'll close by saying this. Know this, that none of this is possible. Your fight is not possible, not desirable, if you don't have the deepest conviction that a life like Christ, a life in His word, is the best way to glorify God and that glorifying God is the surest way to a life of contentment. If you don't believe that, A, you need Christ in a new heart. And I plead with you to receive the grace that is Christ and the forgiveness. He knows everything you've done. And He gives you a new heart and a new spirit so that you can walk in His ways. But if you don't have, Christian, the deepest conviction, 
the deepest conviction that a life like Christ and a life in the Word is the best way to glorify God and that glorifying God is, is the surest way to contentment in life, you're not going to win the battle. That's how it starts. That's why he says at the end, whatever you do, which includes, I think, everything you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's everything you can think of in daily life. Because when you begin to believe that your life is not actually yours, you become less concerned with asking what is the right thing to do, what is the popular thing to do, what is the fair thing to do, what's the comfortable thing to do, what is the convenient thing to do. You stop asking, like, what am I going to get out of it? Which is what a lot of us govern our life in. Well, what's in it for me? And that's because of your overwhelming gratefulness, having beheld Christ, of what you've been given. So you begin to ask a different question. Instead of, what am I going to get out of this? It's, what can I do to make much of the name of Jesus here? What can I do to make much of the name of Jesus? So fight against your first Adam, your Adam 1.0 that's very familiar and easy and natural, and is trying to reign again. You need to fight against this, but fighting against this is not enough. You need to fight for the living water of God. Resist that toilet water, that yucky stuff that you once liked, and fight for the living fountain that is Jesus. You put off the old Adam suit and you put on the new Jesus suit. That's beautiful. And that is a complete picture of holiness. Complete. Now, as you come to the table today, know that you declare both of those things. You come to the table as you lift the bread that is the body of Christ and you dip it in the blood that is His blood shed for you. Know that as you do that, you are declaring In fact, your understanding that I have a sinful flesh and I'm confessing my weaknesses, that I fall short and I will forever fall short, Father. But you, as you proclaim that death, that he buried that old self, never to be raised again, stop playing with dead bodies, you've been raised to new life. And so you also declaring, through you, Christ, I can live differently. Through you, Christ, I can live with more compassion and more humility and more patience. All these things, and only through Him. It is a very mysterious thing, and it's very dependent upon Him. It takes a lot of humility. I pray that He blesses you and graces you with that. I pray the same for me.